One more way you can be involved with the Love, Inc. ministry is this Saturday morning we're going out to deliver furniture. And we are in need of a couple of, a couple more guys who can go out with that team this Saturday. So if you're interested, talk to me or talk to Jerry Hensley after the service. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 34. And that can be found on page 814 in the Bible under your seat. It's Matthew 9, verses 18 to 24, uh, 34. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, The mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Should I whisper for the remainder of the sermon? Good morning. My name's Mike. Happy to be with you here this morning to continue teaching through Matthew. If you'd uh, join me in prayer as we start, that'd be great. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for, for loving and informed choices and, <clears throat> and the ministry that they're doing in Lake County. We, we do ask, Lord, that you would expand uh, their ministry, even more expand our involvement as well. We, we thank you that you love those in need. We pray as we turn to this text that we, would, that we would see the way that you reach out to the broken, broken among the rich, broken among the poor, that we would recognize you to be who you are and that, that the result would be faith. Amen. So we've been working our way through chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew. So for chapters 8 and 9, <clears throat> you're kind of following along on this tour, this ministry tour that Jesus is taking 
in the region of, uh, of Capernaum, which sort of functioned as like the home base at the, at the beginning of his ministry. And he's been doing amazing things, miracles that, that give a glimpse of the power and rule of God right there in Capernaum. He's also been teaching a little bit about discipleship. So you might have noticed this, or, or you might not have noticed this, but Matthew has organized the information in chapters 8 and 9 in a, in a really interesting way. So he, he, what he'll do is he'll tell three miracle stories, and then he'll tell two discipleship stories. And then he goes back and he tells three more miracle stories, and then two more discipleship stories. That's what uh, Michael preached on last week. And then now he, he finishes up the section by doing a final three miracle stories. So it's kind of three, two, three, two, three pattern. So now why would he do that? Why would Matthew organize the section that way? Is it just so he can be a slick author? I don't think so. It is slick, though. That, I mean, it's a cool move to pull off. But I, I think there's something more going on here. The, the structure of this section is Matthew's really subtle way of telling us there's a connection. There's a connection between the miracles and the sayings on discipleship. Matthew's trying to show us something about the kingdom Jesus is bringing and who belongs in it. Matthew is showing us the kinds of people who become part of God's kingdom, the kind of people who will count the cost and follow him, those who are willing to see the great physician. They're from all walks of life. They're all kinds of people. There are tax collectors and sinners, rich and poor. You have lepers and Roman centurions. You have Jews and Gentiles, demoniacs, paralytics, the deathly feverish men and women. But the thing that they all have in common, the thing that the scribes and the Pharisees do not share, is faith. Faith in Jesus. Today, Matthew kind of brings this section to a close. After this moment, Jesus' ministry is going to go elsewhere, and Matthew will, will break the pattern. So he kind of sums up this little section by telling us that Jesus brings God's reign to anyone who approaches him by faith. Jesus brings God's reign to anyone who approaches him by faith. But what is it that we as disciples are supposed to put our faith in? So we're going to explore. First, what we see is that we approach Jesus with the faith that he can do what he came to do. Let's reread the verses 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to him, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. So Jesus is approached by a ruler. This would have been a leader in the synagogue. So there's a prominent figure in the, in the Jewish society in Capernaum. He hurries up to Jesus and he falls on his knees and tells Jesus that he's just come from the deathbed of his own daughter. Matthew's always very understated in how he narrates things, but this moment, despite the way that Matthew narrates, is still just gut-wrenching to me. You, you have to imagine that what this guy has been through, waiting through the hours of his daughter's sickness, 
probably vacillating between hope and then like reprimanding himself for hope, helpless until finally the unbelievable happens and he's sitting there in a room with grieving family realizing that in 24 hours he will have buried his own kid. But then a thought occurs to him, right? And, and Matthew doesn't tell us what, what brought Jesus to mind. Maybe as he was sitting there as this ruler in the synagogue, he, he suddenly remembers that there was a time when a leader in Israel, Elijah, raised the son of a widow. Or, or maybe this is just a last-ditch effort. But in any case, he gets up and he goes searching through Capernaum to find this rabbi who he has heard does amazing things. He's going to ask this teacher to do the impossible. Now, throughout chapters 8 and 9, we've seen people approach Jesus, and they approach him with the faith that he has the authority to help them, no matter how impossible the request may seem, but nothing comes close to what this father is asking. He is asking to reverse the finality of death, the fate of all life. And notice his confidence. He said, my, my daughter's just died, so something... In all my years, I've never seen reverse. Something has happened that never gets reversed. But if you just so much as touch her, if you just lay a hand on her, I know that death itself will turn backwards and she will get up and be given back to me. And Jesus gets up. By way of answer, Jesus gets up and the disciples go with him. And now along the way, something interesting happens. Another character, this, this woman with a discharge of blood, she approaches Jesus. Now, the, the request that the ruler made of Jesus is obviously a, a very, very bold one, right? But the request that this woman makes of Jesus is almost as bold. And to understand the reason why, we have to talk a little bit about something referred to as the purity laws. The purity laws. So when God called out the nation of Israel— he put in place this, this plan by which he was going to dwell among them, right? Israel was going to be this nation in which the true God lived. And so they were going to have this tent, and eventually it was the tabernacle in Jerusalem, but at first it was the, a tent called the tabernacle. And God's presence would dwell there in a very special way. And a number of laws were put in place so that they could live sort of in light of the fact that, dwell, that God dwells there in a special way. And it was said that in order to approach God, in order to participate in the community of his people, in order to join in with worship with everyone else, you had to be ritually clean. Ritually clean. And so what would make you unclean? Well, a lot of the, the uncleanness had to do with death, with contact with death or contact with things that sort of remind you of a kind of death. So if you came in contact with the dead, you would be temporarily unclean, right? So you would have to remove yourself from, from general society and for a specific amount of time and then make a sacrifice and then you'd be sort of reincorporated. But this would also apply to bodily fluids, like this woman's discharge of blood. So this is probably a menstrual discharge. When something like this would happen in the culture, they would be temporarily removed for a specific allotted amount of time. Then they'd make a sacrifice and they'd come back in, right? Becoming unclean and, and becoming clean, it was sort of a, a, a rhythm in a lot of Israelite life. It was something that, that everybody sort of went through. And in the law, it is not associated with sin, okay? So like to be unclean, there's no equal sign between unclean and sinful. To be unclean is not to be sinful. Uncleanness is a result of living in a sinful world, 
But here's the thing, when you look at folks who were unclean for a very long period of time, and then you look at the way that the religious leaders would sometimes treat people who were unclean for a very long period of time, you would get the impression that there was an equal sign between unclean and sinful. It would put you out of the community, it would put you outside of worship, but eventually some of the religious leaders would also attach this stigma to it as well. So now there might have been hygienic reasons for these laws. That's, that's possible, but most importantly, I think it served as a very powerful symbol. So sort of put yourself in the, the day-to-day existence of, of an ancient Israelite, living with these kinds of, of laws in place, these symbols in place. These cleanliness laws would emphasize that the people of Israel are a special, set-apart nation. That their God is a holy God, and he dwells among them. He is set apart. He is completely pure. And no one can approach him or be among his people and take it for granted. It is a special privilege, and Yahweh is a consuming fire. And so an outward way of expressing this, like a way of, of having this reality embedded into the mind of every citizen was through these purity laws. It would have been a very powerful symbol. Of course, symbols of this kind are only necessary in a world that is not holy. Symbols of this kind are only necessary in a world where death exists. They're only necessary in a world in which God is not as approachable as he ought to be. In a world where people easily forget. But this woman and people like her, there was no way to forget. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be unclean for 12 years. According to Leviticus, anything this woman touched would have also become unclean. So she could not share a sofa with somebody because if she did, they would then become unclean and they would have to be removed from the community and wait the allotted period of time and make the sacrifice and then be reincorporated. So anything that she touches becomes unclean. When she went to the marketplace, she would have had to announce herself so that people could part. For 12 years, she would have functionally become a social pariah, an untouchable a total outcast. In other words, the, exactly the kind of person that Jesus went looking for, right? Now, I hope it's clear what incredible faith she's showing here. She knows that if she touches anyone, even their clothing, right, that person is instantly made unclean as well. That's God's law. It can't be any other way. But when she looks at Jesus, she realizes that with him, her uncleanness is not contagious. His cleanness is contagious. That he is so good, so holy, so pure, that in touching his garment, the law will work backwards and she will be made clean. And so she touches his garment. And the phrase that Jesus says, he turns to her and, and he says, Your faith so so can say, that's the, the Greek, your, your faith has made you well, but it's more often translated, Your faith has saved you. This is more than, than just a physical healing, it has restored her to community among God's people. Verse 23, Jesus arrives at the house of the dead daughter and he finds a crowd mourning, complete with flute players, so this was a typical custom for grief. 
He tells them that a, a crowd like that would make perfect sense if the girl was dead. But she's not dead. She's just sleeping, right? <clears throat> and they, they laugh at him. He tells them, he gets them to leave. And I can't imagine what that father felt when he saw Jesus just sort of unceremoniously take his daughter's hand and lift her off the cot like all that had happened was she, she fell and skinned her knee. The girl's healed, and in typical Matthew form, he gives us nothing of the reactions of everyone present in the room. This would totally not fly in Hollywood. But instead, he, he just shows us the impression of the community at large. There's this instant just report that goes out everywhere. You can't keep this kind of thing quiet. This group just saw a dead girl rise back to life. And the report goes across the community quickly. Now remember, for, for each miracle that Jesus does, he isn't just proving that he can do miracles, right? He's proving something much more. He's proving that he really is the one capable of bringing God's kingdom and that he's already doing it right then and there. Not in totality, right, but in part. He's creating these, these little moments in which the things that displease God are reversed. Death and sickness and pain and for the people he's healing, it's like, like this tiny glimpse of the coming kingdom is given to them, and their little place in the world looks a little more like it should, like it will. Jesus can do what he came to do, and he came to save the world. When, when we approach Jesus by faith, we watch all barriers to God dissolve. Nothing can any longer separate us from him, not even death itself. If Jesus can make the unclean clean, then he can build his church. If he can resuscitate dead bodies, then he can resuscitate dead souls to life. If he can pay for sin by his cross, then he can make the news of that victory known across the globe. If he can defeat death in his resurrection, then he can undo all the darkness. If he can start the project of bringing God's kingdom to earth, then know for a fact that he can finish it. Jesus can do what he came to do. Secondly, have faith that Jesus is who he says he is. So Jesus leaves the home of the ruler, and at this point, he's approached by two blind men. And the blind men address him in this really curious way. So let's, let's read that again. Verse 27, I'll go to verse 31. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that region. So I think I mentioned this before in past sermons, but when I was growing up, I had this really hard time trusting that I was actually saved. I feared some terrible surprise at the end of my life. I didn't want to be fooled. I wanted absolute, total certainty that, that I was saved. And I was rightly taught that I got spared God's wrath by believing in Jesus. That's right teaching. But my mind took that and went to some really weird, unbiblical places with it. So I'd ask, okay, so how much then do I have to believe? Like, how, how much do I have to feel my own belief? How much faith is enough in order to be saved? And so I'd have these 
sessions in my room where I'd sort of sit and try to muster up a feeling of certainty, like become extra, extra, extra sure that I believed. And then I would kind of pounce on that feeling and like quickly say the, the sinner's prayer while I felt that certainty because then I knew it would stick. I mean, it was a real, this is what bad theology does to you. Thinking and reading is very important. Bad theology can ruin you. But these were, these were pretty terrible little sessions in my room that I would, I would have where I would just be trying to muster up this, this feeling of certainty. And I really wish that I had paid more attention, not only to, to what folks like my parents were saying or whatever it was saying, but to moments like this. These two blind men, they approach Jesus and they identify him as the son of David. It's the son of David. So this is a, a huge term, a big term, term in the scriptures. And it has to do with the great Israelite king, David. The Jews believed that when Messiah would come, when the great and ultimate king would arrive, when Messiah would come, he would be of the lineage of David. That he would be the, the great, 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 so on and so forth, grandson of, of David. It would be an even better and greater version of David, the ultimate David. And so when these two blind men address Jesus as son of David, they're saying way more than just, we know who your daddy's daddy's daddy was. They're saying something about Jesus' very identity and role in the world. They're saying he's more than a rabbi he is the ultimate Davidic king, and he has come to unite everything in the world under his rulership and bring the reign of God back to creation. They believe something huge about him. And they're the first ones in the book of Matthew to call him by this title. And maybe that's why Jesus doesn't heal them on the spot. Instead, he, he sort of takes them secretively into this house. They've identified something about him that he doesn't want spread around yet. So maybe the house was his own, or more likely it was a home of one of his followers. But in any case, Jesus asks a question of them that teenage Mike should have thought about more. He asks, do you believe that I'm able to do this? He doesn't ask, do you believe the right amount that I'm able to do this? Right? The question is not about the amount of their faith the question is about the object of their faith. They believe Jesus is Messiah. There is no limit to what he can do. And according to their faith, according to who they believe Jesus to be, it is done for them. Healing comes to them because they approach Jesus for who he is, trusting that he is who he says he is. At its most fundamental, faith is not a feeling. There are feelings that go with faith. Oftentimes, and faith can inspire feelings. But faith isn't a feeling. It isn't inwardly focused. Faith is banking everything on Jesus and who he says he is and what he came to do. Faith recognizes our sickness and knows that Jesus has the cure. And it runs to him for grace. Teenage Mike, I was trying to make myself into the kind of man who gets saved instead of looking to the man who saves. True faith is faith in Jesus and not faith in faith itself, right? It's faith in Jesus. It believes that Jesus is who he says he is and trusts him to do what he came to do. It's a simple thing, but it is all that is necessary to enter the kingdom. So after the healing, Jesus urges the men to keep silent 
This is likely because many believed the Messiah would be closer to a warlord, and Jesus, is no, Jesus knows that his ministry is going to be marked by self-sacrifice and, and service. There needs to be more time for him to establish a new paradigm for Messiahship. It doesn't do much, though, because for the second time in the passage, a report spreads all over the district. You can't keep this kind of thing quiet. So Matthew calls us to have faith that Jesus can do what he came to do, that he is who he says he is, and lastly, to have faith that Jesus is worthy to be our representative. That might sound strange at first, but bear with me. So let's reread verses 32 to 35. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So here we're given this reaction of the crowd. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. And this probably isn't just a reaction to the exorcism. It's probably something that Matthew's using to kind of sum up the entire, you know, chapters 8 and 9, this entire tour in Capernaum. This is the crowd's reaction to all these different things, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Jesus is unprecedented. And there's something undeniably spiritual about what's going on. There's just not a whole lot of agreement on what spiritual source it's coming from. The Pharisees see what Jesus is doing, and they attribute it all to dark spiritual powers, not to Yahweh. Now, it doesn't take a very deep reading of the Gospels to see that, that jealousy probably played an enormous role in the Pharisees' opposition to, to Christ, right? They don't like the authority he has. They don't like the attention he gets. But I think Matthew also wants to show us there's more going on here. So here's a question. What do the Pharisees want? Or rather, what, what do they say they want? It's not a question that's addressed directly in any of the Gospels, but there's some reliable research that reveals something really interesting. After the exile of Israel ended, so you guys remember from the Kingdom Come series that we did over the the summer, the exile comes to an end, and Israel's restored to its homeland, and things are, like, not even close to how good they were previously, right? God has restored them, but but seems almost, seems only like a partial restoration. There's still so much that's been lost, so much that needs to change. And so a whole bunch of different groups start to emerge over those, those years that follow. They emerge with different ideas of how Israel needs to behave or to repent or to change so that the great true exile will end. Sin will be forgiven, God's kingdom would return, and so these groups would have included the Essenes, the Sadducees, Zealots, and the Pharisees. The Pharisees seem to have thought that the biggest thing keeping God's kingdom from coming was Israel's indifference to the purity laws. Israel was not obedient enough to God's law, and so they, as the representatives of Israel and leaders in Israel, needed to be extra stringent about the food laws. So that as Israel sort of cleans itself up, God's kingdom will finally come. And that may be why the the Pharisees, you'll remember from Michael's sermon last week, why they're so horrified that he would eat with tax collectors and sinners. They look at stuff like what Jesus is doing, and they say, this is the kind of thing that's preventing God's kingdom from coming. When in reality, it's the kind of thing by which God's kingdom is coming. But that gives us a vantage point into understanding why the Pharisees would have to say everything Jesus is doing, he's doing it by the devil. 
He's undeniably wielding great spiritual power. We're not going to deny that, but there's no way Yahweh could be behind it. Messiah wouldn't associate with sinners. Messiah wouldn't touch the untouchables. Messiah would look like a Pharisee. If Jesus is a friend of sinners, then he's a friend of Satan. And how often are we the same way? We as the church, we, we recognize that we play a role in extending the kingdom of God in this world. That in, in a very imperfect way, we've been invited by, by Jesus to represent God to the world. And so we, we recognize a need to be different, but sometimes we, we isolate ourselves from those who do what displeases God. We avoid sinners. We avoid things that appear unclean. We define ourselves only by what we're against. And sometimes we have to define ourselves by what we're against. But we also need to define ourselves by what we're for. We've talked often about Israel acting as the true Israel, doing what Israel was commissioned to do. And as you'll remember, they were called out to be a kingdom of priests, a nation set apart to bring more and more people into the worship of the living God, to be this like outpost of his presence and power in the middle of the surrounding nations. Israel failed to do this, and the Pharisees did too, but Jesus arrives to act as the ultimate Israel, standing in for them and standing in for all humanity. And he does not fail. He brings the presence and power of God into the lives of broken people and the darkness flees before him. Jesus is the true representative of Israel, and our true representative, and he does it the most at the cross. The evil that would otherwise tempt us all away, the evil that we all participate in, is absorbed in his body at the cross, and its power is exhausted, sacrifice is made, and anything that would alienate us from God is vanquished in his suffering. And just as his death can be seen as our death, so his resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection. Jesus brings God's, re- brings God's reign to anyone who approaches him by faith. Faith that he can do what he came to do, faith that he is who he says he is, and faith that he is worthy to be our representative. So for those of us whose faith has made us well, for those of us who were far and have been brought near, may we follow him in how he lived, announce the kingdom, and love the unlovable. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we thank you that you are worthy to be our representative, that you have made a way to come near you by your cross. Thank you, Lord, that by your blood you have made us clean and that you have done the impossible. We ask, Jesus, that we would follow in your footsteps. Today we're walking through through Missions Month. We're starting with this emphasis on on mercy ministry. And so, God, we we ask that that you would bring wholeness and healing to Lake County, that you would let us participate in your work in the neighborhoods around us that are suffering deeply. Whether that's among the rich or the poor, 
but we sincerely want Lake County to look like the kingdom of heaven. And we know that will not come fully until the day that you return, but we ask, God, that as you did when you walked among us, that we would create these little pockets of healing. That we would be proximate to those who are broken. That we would be fearless about our own brokenness, vulnerable. That your grace would extend to us and extend through us to our place in the world. I pray, Lord, that Trinity Community Church would be a beacon in Lake County. A place where hurting people feel safe. We love you, Jesus. Teach us to be like you. Thank you that by faith alone you've saved us.